Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WBZ, I hope we're ready, because we're live. You're Jay talking, and uh, we're live midnight to five. We like interesting characters. And so, you know, we, we have guests to talk about people like Benedict Arnold and John Adams, but we're gonna be, it's going to be a little different this time. Sheila Hoffman is in, who is uh, highly, highly, highly trained, highly expert a professor of art history at UMass Lowell, right? Works at Tufts as well, teaches at Tufts as well. He's gone to school many, many long, hard years. Tonight we're going to find out about, about Vincent van Gogh. Are you ready? I am. All right. Welcome, Sheila Hoffman. Thank you. You're very welcome. I, your education interests me, first of all. You went to school in a number of places, one of them at the Sorbonne. How, what's that like? And what was that experience like? Well, I, I went back to school after many, many years off. And so it was, um, I was living in a dorm after uh, I had been out of school for many years. I won't say what age, but uh, so it was interesting living with a bunch of kids who were just into school <laughs> for the first time. I became almost like a, a mother and I didn't want to be like for them. Did they expect you to be? No, not really. But, you know, sometimes they turned to me because I was older and I had experience in certain things. So. And so this, you're living in France. You're I living in Paris in for how long? Five years? I was actually in a program that sent me back and forth between Paris and Montreal every other semester. Like every semester I went to one place or the other um, over a period of five and years. And you didn't really speak French? Oh, I spoke French by then. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, by the time you started school. Yeah. What's the best thing about living in Paris? Oh, Paris. What's so great about it? People <laughs> swoon over Paris. What do you well, like about it? The crepes? The, the, the bread, the language, the, cheese, the, the style? The crepes, the... Um, I, I loved being able to walk out my door and smell fresh bread. I loved being able to walk out my door and go to any museum I wanted to, um, to see new things. You could live in that city for years and still be discovering parts of it that you didn't know existed. When you would wander around, where would you tend to wander? Do you have um, a favorite area? I, I tried to explore many. One of my favorite days that I did was I, I followed um, a patissier, uh, a man who made these delicious desserts, who was American but studied in France, had written a blog about his favorite types of French goodies, right? And so you went and... I traced his steps along the Marais, which is the 6th district, it kind of off to the, the right side of uh, the west side of uh, the city. 
and followed him from cafe to cafe, checking out the... And you had something in every cafe? Oh, my goodness, yes. And I got very full by the end, but it was delightful. So the street cafe life is a, is a genuine thing there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. And smoking. People smoke a Absolutely lot. Absolutely, still. still. All right. Now, Vincent Van... We're going to call him Van Gogh, because... We live in America, and that's the way people. I think that's do it. fine. Yeah, but you, I still say Michelangelo, even though you know it's like Michelangelo. Tell Michel them how the, uh, the the real way to say Van Gogh is. Well, in um, Britain they say Van Gogh, and in the Netherlands they say Van Gogh, which is like just more back of the throat and guttural. And I looked up Van. <laughs> yes. Do you know what it means? It's like son of, or it's right. Like it a, means from. Exactly. All right. So he was a a post impressionist. What's impressionism and what's uh, Post-impressionism besides that which comes after impressionism. Well, it, it's funny. Impressionism is like taking, if you if you can think of it as taking a really quick, um, we would use the term snapshot, but of course that wasn't the case back then. Photography was in its early days, but if you could take a painting snapshot of something, that would be impressionism. You're taking quick strokes to jot it down. What you're trying to capture is how the light changes on it, right? You're not trying to capture it perfectly and precisely and beautiful. That's over. They don't need to do that anymore. And so instead, they take their easels outside. They try to capture what they're seeing in front of them, but just in a certain brief moment of time. So their impression of it, just their quick little, like, what was my impression of it in that moment? You know, this is a good opportunity to travel backwards and mm -hmm. talk about those 12th century people, those sure, 13th century sure, people. Yeah. When, when art started, art as we know it on paintings or triptychs and things. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> what were they trying to accomplish then? That what was the first thing? Realism or before realism? They didn't even have the three dimensional. Everything was kind of flat. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about this is this is art history one hundred and one right here. And it was right? all so religious. You go back to medieval times, right? So prior to the Renaissance, which everyone knows means rebirth, right? Renaissance, rebirth. Right? This is the rebirth of those values that they saw in Greek period that the Romans tried to capture and repeat, which is where the perspective and the recreation of the human form, essentially, um, was perfect. Perfect in, in the, the sense of how the human eye sees. And that was a goal, to that capture every goal muscle, every ripple in the, in the horse or the human To make figure. it look absolutely perfection as God had created it. Right. Prior to that, the goals of that of of art had been primarily, um, you know, there was a lack of literacy. And so these were used to the, the images were used to tell stories in churches, you know, certainly to decorate, but also to make people feel a resonance with God and the stories of the Bible. So, OK, they didn't read. And to tell the story, they would have a picture of. Somebody in the right. line, Adam then. and Eve being yeah. thrown out of the, right. the Garden of Eden. It's right? all OK. So. It was to tell a story. Right, exactly. And they didn't even have canvas then. They painted on wood. A lot of times on um, fresco, which is, you know, usually wet fresco, um, so wet plaster. And then they use this, like, tempera paint to, like, sink into it and become hardened and become one with the plaster. That was a popular one in the medieval period. Okay, so we get back to Impressionism. Mm -hmm. Then what's post-Impressionism? So Impressionism, if you could put that, it's a very short-lived period, around 1880-ish. It kind of there's some lead up to it, and it, the last, very last show that the Impressionists did together was 1886 because they quickly became bored with this this game that they were trying to play, capture the moment, right? If you want to think of it that way. So post-Impressionism had two different forms, and post-Impressionists said, the the people who who were considered post-impressionists said either I want to express myself more, and so they started putting their personal feelings into it, as Van Gogh did, 
or they wanted to change the formal qualities of it more. So they started changing the, the actual forms that you see messing with the shapes and the colors and whatnot. So there were two different kind of strains of it. And there wasn't really a formal style of post-impressionism. It was really just a catch-all for everyone that came after impressionism. I, I think many of us think of Van Gogh as uh, ancient history, but not really. No, not really at all. Just kind of the... Just prior to the turn of the century, right? Well, he died in 1890, I believe, and uh, was born in 1850. So people so have grandfathers that were alive yeah, yeah. when he was alive. Exactly. There are photographs of uh, Vincent van Gogh. So. I saw a young, one of the young ones with mm -hmm. no beard or anything. Yeah, it yeah, it yeah. was weird looking. Now, he uh, born into a bad, I think, sad situation. Tell the story about his brother and his still stillborn brother. <laughs> right. Well, he is, he was born into a sad situation. All right. He was born on um, March thirtieth of eighteen fifty three, but exactly one year earlier, on March thirtieth, eighteen fifty two, a baby had been born, stillborn, to his mother, and that baby had been named Vincent. And so they had a tombstone created for him that he essentially that Vincent the second the second Vincent um, that we know. Uh, had to live with. So he basically saw his own tombstone for most of his his childhood growing up in that house. It, yeah. it, it's interesting because this really, I mean, he grew up in a very religious household. Um, the Dutch tend to be, I mean, there's a lot of very religious people there as well. They're all Protestant, or at least in that part of the Netherlands they were. Um, there's a long history of the fight between the Protestant Reformation and, of course, the Catholics that had come a couple hundred years before. Um, so there's there's a lot there to kind of strike a chord on this religious kind of psychological level for Vincent at a very early age. So father religious and preacher, right? Mm, yes, and, and his grandfather as well. Mother, a, a morose kind of artist person. Yeah, an austere, and um, she, she would have been, I mean, we think about the Puritans and the Quakers here in the United States um, who are primarily English. Now, the Dutch Reformed Church, which is where his, his father was a minister and his, his grandfather, is very similar to that. I'm sure someone out there knows more doctrine than I do about the differences, but they're very similar and they're very austere um, in many ways. Um, as much as they can be kind and generous on a human level, um, family life was very austere. And so you can kind of sense that in a lot of, his writings about his childhood. Well, didn't the Puritans come from there? Essentially, yeah. I mean, all... That's all kind of who they were. Yeah, all Protestants came from Martin Luther nailing his theses on the door, right, in Germany. Now, who were Van Gogh's contemporaries? Who did he hang out with? I'm trying to get a sense of the guy as a human being. <clears throat> did he did he go to pubs with other famous artists? You know, paint the paint the picture for me. Uh, that life really came about um, in about 1886 when he moved in with his brother Theo in Paris. And prior to that, he had been kind of living an itinerant life. He had done a, a handful of different jobs. He had explored different um, facets of his life and kind of failed at many of them. And so I don't, I don't know that he was actually going out and hanging in, around in pubs at that point. I think that the cafe lifestyle, as you mentioned, in Paris, that came about once he lived in Paris. So that was only for like four years. Yeah, not even. Right. right? I think it was like just a couple years, two years, really. What are some of the things he failed at? <laughs> um, life, love, God. <laughs> but as far as jobs. Um, he had been an art dealer. Um, and now you have to think of him as not an art dealer that we would know today, some sort of high-priced gallery on the, the main street. He would have been apprenticed to kind of a, a company. 
first in The Hague, um, Den Haag, in the Netherlands. He was later sent to London. Uh, he fell in love with the landlord's daughter and came on to her so strongly that he was uh, lost his job and kind of kicked out. <laughs> he was a loser. He, We would call him that today. I mean, really. He decided that he was going to find God. He tried to get into the ministry. He failed the theological exam. You know, it was always something with him. He tried to get into art schools, and he would drop out because he didn't like the way they teach. They, they would teach him. Um, there's a famous story of how they were using a plaster cast of the Venus de Milo, Venus de Milo, and um, they were using it as a as an artist model. And he decided that he would paint it in a much more realistic manner rather than trying to copy the contours that were already there that had been created by a master, right? So he decided to put hips on her and buttocks on her and whatnot. And when the teacher tried to correct him very angrily, like scratching through his paper with the, the teacher's pencil, um, Van Gogh threw a fit and started yelling at the teacher. I was like, you've never seen a woman. You don't know what a woman needs. Like a woman has a butt and hips so that she can have children. <laughs> this isn't a real woman. <laughs> Talk a little bit more about his many failed romances. I don't think we completely... No, um, it's really clear in the letters that he writes to his brother, and there are, there are hundreds of these letters available. We really have a nice kind of insight into his life because of the, the letters that were kept by his brother. Um, but it was it's really clear that he had a, a real passion for everything. He was a zealot in everything that he did, whether it was art, whether it was God, whether it was love, so much so that like, if modern women encountered him, they would be like, you know, to step back, bro, <laughs> because he was he was so forceful about and ardent uh, with his his admiration for women, and he he fell in love with the the landlady's daughter in London when he was quite young. He fell in love with a, a cousin of his just after her husband had died, and came onto her so strongly that she was running from him, like she yeah she was repulsed. Back to the house, yes, yeah, he repulsed her completely repulsed, and everyone all these people kept saying no no never never you know like no way um this is not going to happen and even still he was writing to his brother saying you know i had to sit there in that moment and say am i going to be dissuaded from my passion for this person or am i going to continue and stand up and believe you know that's a little bit and he painted some of them oh yes he he painted not some of these earlier ones i don't believe but um he did fall in love before he went to Paris in 1886. Uh, he fell in love with or shacked up with, would be the modern term, a woman who was a known prostitute. She was pregnant with someone else's child. She'd already had another child. There may have been a couple other children prior to that that were mostly grown or living elsewhere. And, um, you know, she was apparently very, very coarse, lots of language, as you can imagine. Is this uh, uh, Maria Hornick? Yes, seen as he called her. And um, he was very fond of her and fought his family because his family, of course, you can imagine a very religious, you know, austere, modest family. And you have to understand that Van Gogh grew up in very uh, kind of a upper middle class situation. And so to shack up with a, a, a prostitute was was certainly a not looked well upon. He really saw it as trying to save her. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, clearly didn't work out. His family talked about getting him committed even at that point. Um, already he had had some episodes in his life with his cousin when he fell in love with her to, um, came on so strong and he, he would say, I don't have any recollection of doing this, that thing or that thing. And so people were already worried about him. So if somebody's sitting at a computer right now, they could look up a painting of Klesina yeah, Maria Hornick. You would see that she's actually quite haggard and, um, you know, just looks older than her years ought to be and maybe um, that's the way he wanted her to look in the painting it's possible but it's possible also that she had a very hard life and maybe was he was painting her soul malnourished yeah but you know he was drawn to people like this troubled people broken people broken people and not and not even that like um people who were lesser off than he was when he uh after a couple career dabblings he eventually declared himself for the ministry failed at the theological exam and then went down to what's kind of called the the black region of Belgium, like down in Mons, and um, worked with the miners down there. He's supposed to be an evangelist, kind of a lay assistant to these miners, and was so taken with their poverty and their lifestyles and the hardships that they faced that some of them like were dying even as like he ministered to them. He saved a man from a, a fire because again, almost like saving this this prostitute. He felt like it was his moral obligation. He gave up all of his worldly possessions. And so, of course, the, the church that he worked for was like, okay, you know what? You're taking this a little bit too, too far. <laughs> so he was going out with Hornick, the prostitute, and she went back to prostitution while they were together, and he got depressed. And his family, his, tell me if I got this right, threatened to cut off his money, yeah. which tells us that he was getting money from his family. Oh, for still. his entire life. For his entire life. For his entire life. He was. He never. He sold one painting. His brother sold one painting in his life, and it was, you know, not long before his death. And the rest of the time, he was getting money from his family, living with his family. You know, his brother, who was a younger brother, who was also trying to make his own way in life, eventually getting married and having a kid, kept supporting him. There are a lot of people that believe that he, when he killed himself, it was because he believed that he had become such a constant burden to his brother, who now had a child, that he didn't want to be that burden anymore he painted 43 self-portraits that seems like a lot what's what's going on there well, any idea I, I i think so and i think you know these are my ideas and i think that there are a lot of experts and scholars out there who might disagree but um you know this this whole idea of his his brother being born and living with that that gravestone is a memento mori now the the puritans the quakers the the dutch reformed church the dutch in particular had these um, traditions of these memento mori. This is like a reminder of your death. So this is a reminder. These are paintings. These are portraits. And you see a lot of these in early American history too. They're ugly. They're ugly portraits. And what they really are is they're not vanity portraits like you see in a lot of European like royalty where people are beautiful or they're made to look wealthy and rich and you know well-educated. These are just like, here you are. It's not that great. Get over it because you're going to die someday. I mean, if I could just put it like a who would want to sit for it. that? Who would want to get a portrait done by him? Well, that's exactly it. So he wound up doing his own portrait a lot. But it's a really interesting. We would call it psychology today. We would like look into it and say this man is studying himself. Is there any 
trend throughout the 43? Do you see a direction? Oh, you know, I wouldn't want to comment on that without having them right in front of me. But you know what's interesting to me is that, you know, he's often turned in what's called a two-thirds or three-quarter profile, and he only shows one ear. And then once he cuts off his ear, this is like later on, this is like around uh, 88 or 89, I think, it, right at the end of 88, he creates these portraits where you see that he's got a bandage on one ear and then he's got this whole other ear. So it becomes part of this identity. It that became a thing, kind yeah. of. A, a Even trademark. though the whole time, like the other, t most of the other portraits don't actually show his other ear. We'll get into this, the ear story in, in detail later. The uh, no formal, he had no formal training, I understand. Ish, you know, he he took a couple classes. He matriculated at an art academy, I believe it was in Antwerp. Um, but you know, he rapidly dropped them. I think he might have fulfilled a couple courses, but never fulfilled like a degree, what we would call a degree program or completion, right? Okay, we only have 60 seconds or so <laughs> left. Oh yeah, 60 seconds is a good time for you to talk about The Potato Eaters, his first, quote, masterpiece. Sure. Done when he was living with his family in Nuna. And, um, what is a potato eater? These are, these are literally Dutch people who are so poor that they're eating potatoes. This is, this is, these are the real people, the people who are poverty-stricken, and um, this stems from a long line of uh, Dutch realism and the realism that was popular in the day in Paris. You know, we complain these days about our our, our economy. But you look out, the restaurants are full. Uh -huh. Everybody's got a new car. Everybody really has everything they want. They're eating more than potatoes. Can't even figure out what to get people for Christmas. Right. And, you know, they're eating potatoes. Yeah, I think and they're we, they're. I think we ought to, we ought to stop complaining a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, no. They he lived he lived on like bread, cheese, and absinthe. Look, it's grim art, right? Yeah. Well, he, he only had about 10 years of, uh, of kind of a fruitful period in art. He started drawing the miners when he was an evangelist. He was about 24, 27 when he started really drawing seriously. And it was all of these, you know, kind of the conditions of the miners and the people that populated the, this black region where he went. And then from then on, it was he was constantly drawn to the reapers and the sowers in the field, the, the peasant women, and, you know, this, this kind of part of, part of humanity. Talk about his brother in some detail, Teo. Teo, yeah. Um, well, Teo was his younger brother, but was successful in things, you know, where, where Vincent had failed. He was eventually became successful in love. He became an, an art dealer, a successful one, worked in Paris, worked in, uh, I believe, The Hague in Antwerp. Um, and so they were very close, so close that, you know, at the, the passing of Vincent at a very young age, at 37, when he killed himself, um, Teo died not too much longer after that. He died of syphilis? Uh, who? Teo, Teo or Van Gogh? Teo did, yes. That's something, whoa, that's a shocker. We, we, we don't think of that anymore. Well, it's funny because, you know, not funny, but Van Gogh had also been hospitalized for syphilis and gonorrhea at various times. Let's just say they like the brothels. I, <laughs> guess, I guess so. Um, I might as well tell the story of the year now and tell it in... Super granular detail. I will try. It's a good one, and there's a lot of theories about why he did it, but we can give you some facts about like how what we led up to, or how. And you how can give various to. theories too. Sure. We have the luxury of time. Oh, so well, the whole—it's true. He did cut off his he ear. He cut off his ear, or at least a part of it, you know. But we think of his whole ear, right? And um, so no one's ever going to know exactly why he did this because this is a man alone in his room, you know, who has mental issues, cut off his ear. The really interesting thing is what he did with that year afterwards, but let's lead up to the, the ear first. 
Um, he had gone down to Arles, which is in the south of France. It's a, you know, it's on the um, on the Mediterranean. It's a completely different place than Paris. Completely different. The south place. of France, Aix-en-Provence, and Arles and Avignon. All the artists go down there some Absolutely. at some point, right? But, and we all think of it. This is Mediterranean. This is coastal town. This is a nice area. But no, Arles at the time was kind of a seedy little like city. Marseille. Yeah, only a little smaller. Bit. Yeah, exactly. And he had been lured there by the idea of beautiful women. There were these kind of these famed Arlesian, they were the, the women um, of Arles. And what he found when he got there was not <laughs> what he expected. He was kind of looking for love still, you know, but they had some great brothels, which he, he definitely was in. Great he, brothels. Yeah, that's what Highly he, rated. That's exactly what he wrote to Theo, and he was going to make a tour of them. And what he also wanted to do was kind of start what we what we would call an art colony. When he was in Paris, he talked of this. He wanted all his friends to come down. And the only person that wound up coming down was Paul Gauguin. And he had to be talked into it by Theo. He had to be talked into it by... Um, by uh, Vincent. And of course, you know, Paul left his wife and five kids, right? So he's not exactly a model of citizen here. But Paul was, you know, more polished, more of a Parisian, better with the ladies, if you will. He was established too. He was established too, yeah. And so it's weird that he would hang around with such a loser. Well, in a way, and you keep calling him a loser, and that that's really you can imagine this is a man that has has completely ravaged his body through poor nutrition and bad habits and sleeping around with, you know, diseased people, right? So you can imagine this gaunt, unkempt, probably smelly, kind of wild-haired man, right? And nutty acting. And nutty acting, yeah. Very <laughs> led by his passions, not knowing when to quit, you know, um, failing at things when he got the slightest bit angry. You know, he had a, a fraught relationship with Teo when he lived with them, even though they, they were very close throughout their lives. Okay. So, I interrupted your, your yeah, 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 story. No. So, so Gauguin goes down there, and they, they, they try to, you know, Van Gogh was trying to impress him because he was considered the better artist. But then even when Gauguin was complimenting, Van Gogh would get angry at him for complimenting him. This happened all the time, right, with other people as well, including Teo. Wouldn't take a compliment. And there are, there are stories about him throwing his absinthe glass and, you know, almost like throwing drinks in, his, in uh, Gauguin's face and whatnot. Anyway, tempers eventually flared because, some people say, that Van Gogh had been asking um, a, a woman, uh, Marie Genot, Genoux, excuse me, to pose for him as a, as a model for a long time. And she kind of reluctantly did it. She, she had a com kind of a commercial relationship with him. She did not, she don't sleep with him, but you know, she was very standoffish when Paul Gauguin came. Oh, well <laughs> this, this changed things. And she decided to, you know, openly model for both of them, but really for Paul Gauguin. Yeah. And the theory is, is that um, Van Gogh was a little bit jealous. So anyway, they wind up in the streets. They're yelling at each other. Um, Vincent comes at him with a razor. Now one of those like old time straight shaving, razors, yeah. like a straight razor, yeah. And he didn't come at, at him with a big razor, right? Exactly. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm going to shave you. No, no, no. He he was threatening him, right? And they had had these. You know, Gauguin was you know having more success in the brothels. He was, as they say, getting more for his franc. Were they um, all drunk all the time? Like, does, this, like does this add to the whole it, thing? It really does. And of course, you know, Vincent is straight up malnourished, right? So you can imagine what a single drink of absinthe on that would do, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so the story, original story is, is that he goes back, he get you know, after this, this straight razor in the street incident, after Gauguin stared him down, Van Gogh went back to his house and cut off his ear. The interesting thing about this is that he wraps up this ear. 
he takes it back to the brothel where this fight had started and he gives it to um, a lot of people think that the woman's name was Rachel. There are some sources that talk about uh, this woman who had said five francs or you cut off your ear. And now uh, there's no telling as to why he did this. Certainly there was a fight with Gauguin. Certainly there was this machoism about who was more successful with the ladies and whatnot. There's another theory out there that he had just received news from Teo that Teo had gotten engaged. So once again, Teo had succeeded where Gauguin had failed spectacularly. And, and um, Paul Gauguin was there, who, uh, who also made Vincent feel like he was a failure in a lot of things. There are some people, even back in some of the, the written records between cousins of um, Vincent van Gogh, who said that the cutting off the ear may have been inspired by the, um, the matador, uh, the bullfight uh-huh. practices, where the matador will eventually cut off the ear of the bull and then throw it to the, the most beautiful lady in the crowd. And so there's some speculation that he was basically giving this ear to this woman as saying, like, I'm done. You've killed me. I'm the bull. You know, your matador is, you know, cut off my ear. And there it is. You know, don't you feel proud? And so is that coupled with some martyrdom? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? So he, he actually paints this great picture. You know, one of his like missing ear portraits has um, his easel is kind of positioned almost like a cross in the background. And then he's got these. These Japanese, he was very influenced by the Japanese after he went to Paris, these Japanese prints that would come out. And so he has these image of Japanese women in a, in a print in the background of his painting of his self-portrait with the cutoff ear. So it was like these almost like the virgins at the, the, or the Virgin Mary at the, the foot of the cross with the Magdalene and whatnot. Instead, you've got these three geishas. And soon after, he actually paints himself into what's called a pieta. This is the Christ being descended from the cross, but he puts his face on Christ. So he definitely has this, like, martyrdom. I mean, he, he was resurrected, right? I mean, was, he, he was died, he, he was killed, and then, or stillborn, and then a year later he was resurrected, in a sense. Is there a Van Gogh tour, you know, in, in Paris that you could see, like, where he cut his ear off and... Oh, he, that didn't happen in Paris. That happened in oh, Arles. Oh, okay. Yeah, south of France. Is, are, there, are there tours like that, though, where... I'm artists, sure there are. Famous artists lived and hung out. Absolutely, I'm sure there are. And both in Paris as to where he was. And there's certainly markers, placards, both in all over the Netherlands and Belgium, in Paris, and certainly Arles is complete, just replete with them. All right. Let's break. And then we'll talk to Monica in Waltham, who has a, something to say. Awesome. Maybe, maybe a question. And uh, we'll do one more segment with our excellent guest, Sheila. Sheila Hoffman on WBZ. Jay talking. We could talk Talk. We gotta talk. WBZ News Radio 1030. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies all night long. 
BZ, we continue. It's WBZ. We continue with Sheila Hoffman, who is an art historian, professor at uh, UMass Lowell in Tufts, and travels all around to places like Russia and Japan. Is coming up to lecture. She's living the dream, especially now that you finally made it to this program. Jay talking. That must be a real. That's right. Must I feel agree. great. It does. <laughs> living the dream. <laughs> Let's go to Monica in Waltham. Hello, Monica. Hi, Bradley. Hey. I have a hi, Sheila. Hi, Monica. Uh, I have a couple of questions, if that's okay. I love it that you're calling so late, and it's about mm-hmm. art, and you still want to call. That's great. <laughs> I'm really enjoying hearing you. Thank you. Um, so my first question is, do you think there are many people who sort of think they haven't really seen any Van Gogh paintings, and they just think, I don't know why everyone's so excited about Van Gogh. I don't really get it, because my experience was seeing books before I went to Europe, and I just didn't. You don't see the depth and the color and the texture. And when I finally saw the paintings many times at the old Jeu de Pont Museum before they moved the Impressionists to the the Gare d'Orsay Orsay train station Mm -hmm. in Paris, Mm -hmm. um, I was like, wow, now I really see why people talk about how fantastic Van Gogh is because it just was outstanding to see these thick paint and the vivid color that you just don't get from a piece of paper. So I'm curious if you... Think that's true for a lot of people, and also, where would you recommend people around here go see work since they might not be able to go? Good to question. Or, or yeah, Amsterdam or whatever. <laughs> oh, that—that's. I mean, I, I would certainly recommend the the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. That's a fantastic museum. I am new to the area, so I'm less familiar with the exact pieces that they have there. But seeing the works in person is so incredibly important. A book, no matter how good the quality of the image is, it will never do it justice. You are absolutely right, Monica. Because like sometimes the like um, the impasto, this is like the thickness of the paint would be so intense that it starts mm-hmm. like pulling off the canvas. It's like it's actually like a conservation issue in some of the museums because it's so heavy, but it is so thick. If you could get up close, you can get close-ish to some of these really famous paintings now to see it and to be absorbed in it. It's really intense and it's a surprisingly personal and a little bit spiritual. I don't mean that in the religious sense. I mean that in the kind of like the individual spirituality sense where you get in there and you're so absorbed in what someone else's emotion and expression of that motion was that you lose yourself in it. So mm-hmm. really, if you can say, and I, I do think that people are like, okay, so Starry Night, what's the big deal? It's kind of cool. It's very colorful. <laughs> so what? But, you know, it's it's really inspiring when you can see it in person. I think that goes for most major artists. I mean, all art really, but the really great artists are the ones where you have that kind of semi-religious experience in front of them personally. Yeah, so, that, that was definitely my experience. And I have another question, too, sure, before please. Bradley lets me go. Um, I read an article in a magazine not too many years ago. I'm not sure if it was like an Atlantic Monthly or I just don't remember, a National Geographic. But they were talking about his death and whether he was really suicidal or the gunshot wound maybe he was sort of taunted by a couple of kids that thought he was 
paying too much attention to a young woman, and I can't even remember the details, but the implication was that maybe he really wasn't suicidal and he got an infection because he didn't treat the gunshot wound. Does that ring any bells? He definitely got an infection from a gunshot wound. It was as treated as it could be, but um, the surgeon, they, they couldn't actually remove the bullet, and so they basically could only make him comfortable, and he died about a day and a half, two days after he shot himself. It's pretty widely believed that he um, understood that he was suicidal. This was not the first time that he had kind of made an attempt on his life um, or talked about whether he should live. Um, so, you know, maybe there's some evidence out there that, that people were taunting him and maybe that prodded him on, but I think that, that the groundwork was already laid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank well, you, I, Monica. Fascinating conversation, Bradley. Thanks. And now that you, uh, broken the seal on the call here, call more often. Okay. Thank you. You're Thanks, welcome. Monica. A lot of times that first call, I, I called it one time I called the talk show and I was very nervous and I'm a talk show host. <laughs> so one thing... Monica brings something up that is that kind of blows me away. That you can get up so close mm-hmm. in places like the MFA to these priceless works of art. You can touch. You can't. You shouldn't touch them, but you could. And there's so many bad people in the world. I'm surprised that we don't have the vandalism. Right. What, well, course, what, what's going on there? Well, of course, there's an issue of that in the Netherlands. Of course, the the Night Watch, as it's kind of colloquially, you know, in the Rembrandt's massive painting, his the masterwork. Um, was vandalized uh, twice, I think, maybe even three times. It was cut, you know, like as, as a political statement about um, the, the Dutch state. So it's protected very heavily. And there's that Jackson Pollock at the Detroit Art Institute that was, you know, some kid walked up and put a piece of gum on it, which I think it's great. They actually, I think they decided to leave the piece of gum because, you know, Pollock himself would like paint let cigarette ashes and cigarette butts fall into it. So, you know part of the history now but for the most part i think that people do revere these things and there is a cultural bias towards like maybe damaging them i i hope i'm an art historian so that's what i feel i hope so (laughs) one thing is besides being close and seeing the painting up close there's Mm -hmm. the knowledge that the artist was standing right where your feet were in relation reaching out just like you could that's intense and that that artist with all that artist you know what all the mess that Van Gogh mm-hmm. was, yeah. the dude who was standing there all smelly and bummed out, yeah. painting his painting, yeah. and here it is. So important to him that he would rather buy paint than meat, you know? Yes. Uh, we have six minutes to get a little detailed. I, I saw in a letter that he wrote to his brother how it was difficult to melt the paint to, to get the gold just right. And mm-hmm. we don't think of, we think of people just doing the, the brushing, squeezing it out of tubes, but there, a lot of times there there was the technical aspects of painting that people don't understand. And I guess I didn't realize you had to heat the paint to make it get get a certain hue. A certain viscosity, sometimes a certain hue. Um, you know, and this is at the very early days of tube paint. You know, this is the the tube paint was kind of a revelation or I want to say around the 1860s, mid 1860s. What they do before that? Um, they had to mix their own. So if you out of powder. Yeah. If you wanted to have blue, you would have to grind down lapis, you know, into a fine powder and mix it with a, you know, a vehicle and then, a you know, an, a, uh, you know, like an oil or whichever it was going to be. If you were using water and gum Arabic for watercolors, you'd have to mix it with these these different components. If you wanted white, you'd have to put a piece of lead in a bath of acid and wait for it to bubble up. And and to to um, create the little sediment on it, you know, the excretions, and scrape that off, grind it down, mix it into oils, et cetera. It was a lot of work. Have you ever thought about painting? Do you do it? I am so bad. I am 
so comically bad at. So it's it's not something <laughs> anyone can learn. No, no. But you know, one of the things that I always hear in my classes is that like, why would people paint like this? You know, you were taught from a young age to paint like perfection. You want to perfectly capture that thing, like they did in the Renaissance. We talked about at the top of the show. But, you know, by the time photography came around, photography could capture something perfectly, almost, or at least they thought at the time. So why should artists? So artists started branching out. Yeah, what's the out. point? Yeah, artists saying, well, if we're not going to do that anymore, what could we do? And that is really where that moment where we see art starting to take off and go into these fantastic directions that, you know, we see in modern art. We may not understand them all. But once you start scratching that surface, standing in front of these things, asking these kind of critical questions, it can be pretty cool. You can, as a teacher, have an effect, quite a major effect on I kids. I hope so. I, I had a Mrs. Williams, rest her soul, in fifth grade. And she was the regular teacher of fifth grade, but she happened to have art abilities. She cared about art. So when you got to the fifth grade in my little bitty school, she made you make a book each week. She would give a print out and you'd mount it in your little book and you'd have to write a little report wonderful about it and we actually made the cover to the little book with by you know the colors and then crumpling the paper right. and then ironing it out again and i always remember i remember that i remember paintings like the gleaners mm -hmm. is that bruegel the, uh you're oh you're thinking of that one yes and the fact that i did that in fifth grade in my there Weird was a country bumpkin school was a big deal. There was a gleaners that uh, inspired Van Gogh as well. You know, um, there was uh, Millet who did the gleaners of around the mid 1800s, you know, in Paris. And that was one of the very first monumental size works of art of a very what they considered boring and dirty, you know, like uh, subject matter. This was people gleaning the fields like these old women who would like go in and like pick up the little leftover pieces of uh, of grain after it had already been like. And I love those old dark, weird paintings of like people lugging. They've gone hunting, and it's winter and dark That's and weird. Brutal, yeah. <laughs> and they're lugging some sort of deer or something that they yeah. caught in the woods Again, back in this, Dutch. this <clears throat> fireplace. You know, this open fires and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, I can picture exactly the one you're talking about. Yeah. So we don't have time to talk about the key thing that, well, a key thing that we wanted to talk about. So you probably have to come back. Okay. And we can talk about it in conjunction with something else that we can come up with. And that thing is, I'll just tease. The thing is that you're an expert in early, 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 early art, before cave painting. And we had a discussion about... I'm not an expert. I am a... Well, by the time you get coming next time, you will be. Uh, I mean, we, just be careful with that term. Like, human beings, you know, can make a scratch on the cave wall... At what point do these scratches become become art? Yeah, and that's a big discussion. And what does it matter to the human brain? It's that moment when, when human art, when human brains have the capacity for art, that we become have the capacity yeah. for so much more. So there, we can talk about what has to be going on in the human brain. What development has that had to take place? Is it a self awareness? You can, you know, we'll go into that. Absolutely. And. You know, we can cook up some other art-related topic. One of my favorite topics. Okay, cool. Did you have fun? I did. Thank you so much. Sheila Hoffman. Fantastic. Um, you know, all the best to you. Um, I'm glad that you came in. I hope we put your expensive and very difficult education to use. <laughs> Sheila Hoffman, uh, thanks. It's WBZ Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.